This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 21st, 2020. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, staff writer Eric Stockstead joins me to talk about how wildlife biologists are taking advantage of humanity's sudden lull to see how animal behavior changes when people are a little less obtrusive. Next, for our special issue on mud, yes, wet dirt, we have senior correspondent Elizabeth Panisi. She's going to talk about her feature on electric microbes that were first found in mud. Now, they're found pretty much everywhere. First up this week, we have staff writer Eric Stockstead. He wrote about what we can learn from wildlife or about wildlife when humans suddenly go quiet. Hi, Eric. Hi, Sarah. This spring and summer, the world has been quieter. Less travel, less commuting, fewer gatherings that make large crowd noises. In fact, in the story, you use this term anthropause. What does a change, this change in human behavior, look like from the point of view of wild animals? Say you're a squirrel. What's going on around you? Well, Sarah, I think the biggest change is that so many people were staying home. There were less cars on the road. There were less flights. We know that for sure. Some researchers have estimated that at the peak of the lockdown, maybe 60% of the human population was, was staying home. So far, far fewer people out, cars, trains, planes, ships, all these things that make noise and are a presence on the, on the natural mm-hmm. landscape. This term, the anthropos, right? It's, it's a nod to this term called the Anthropocene, which is this concept that the era we're living in right now is so defined by the incredible impact that humans are having mm-hmm. on the planet. And so the Anthropos is just the sense that for these weeks or months, there's been a slowdown in that. I have to say, it's a much nicer term than, than one that I've seen elsewhere. Some other researchers call this the global human confinement experiment. And boy, that, that really hits home how, this, how much this sucks, doesn't it? So uh, maybe we'll stick with the anthropos. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that will stick with anthropos. I've heard a lot about researchers losing a summer at their field sites. They're not able to fly to their destination. They've had to cancel cruises that were doing ocean research, things like that. But this time also presents an opportunity to study animals and their behavior and ask questions what it would be like if people were just less present. Which study caught your eye first when you started to look at this? One example of the kind of opportunity that this has been for scientists that I came across is it's a project called the International Quiet Ocean Experiment. It's a lovely name, isn't it? Yeah. And what they are looking at is all the sources of sound that humans create in the ocean, ship propellers, banging at ports. And for several years, they've been trying to find places where the ocean is gotten a little quieter because humans have stopped doing something. It might be with shipping lanes have changed for a while from one route to another. Or if there's uh, construction at a port, that might mean boats aren't coming in anymore. This has been a search to find these places where they can figure out what animals experience in the ocean when humans aren't as noisy as they usually are. Now, are they the ones who are interested in how marine animal communication evolved without people being around? That's one thing that a lot of researchers want to know about because animals evolved their communications, the clicks of dolphins and the songs of whales. They evolved those communication strategies when the oceans were a lot quieter than they are now. Wow. So what are they going to do during this anthropause? At the peak of the lockdown, there was a lot less shipping traffic than normal. So what they're going to do is go back to their recordings of ocean noise because all over the ocean there are hydrophones, these underwater microphones that listen for background noise. And there are robotic gliders that are making these measurements in the oceans. They can go back and analyze these recordings and see what the sound levels were when the ships were less active. Very cool. A lot of that shipping is back up higher. So this is, a, this is something where they're looking back at what happened earlier. Also interesting is that there's some indications that although commercial traffic went down during the lockdown, in some places, recreational boating was on the up when people were trying to find socially distanced ways to, uh, to get out of their houses. So it's complicated. Right. I really like that about the story. There are positive effects to humans being more out of the picture, but it's not always predictable. And, you know, it's not all positive. For example, predators and prey might both be more active if there are fewer humans out and about. Exactly. Yeah. So one group of researchers is trying to see how birds respond to changes in, uh, in human activity. And they're using this wonderful resource called eBird, which is a citizen science project where people upload their bird observations and from all over across the country. And that data provides a really good insight into where birds are, how abundant they are. And they're looking at whether these patterns of abundance changed before, during, and after the lockdown. One hypothesis is that birds that are noise sensitive, we know that they don't like a lot of noise, whether they changed in abundance near roads that might have been quieter. Another hypothesis is that the roads are less noisy, but because there's less traffic, it might be easier for cats or other predators to cross and be more mobile and increase their predation on birds that are living on the ground or nesting on the ground. 
cars may drive faster if there's less traffic. That's right. You'd expect that if there's less traffic on the road, there might be quieter conditions. It turns out that if there are fewer cars on the road, the ones that are driving can drive faster and faster cars are louder than slower cars. So it's a, it's a complicated analysis and it depends on what matters to the animal, if, it, if it's sort of the chronic level of noise or peaks of loud noise that might startle them. That gets at this idea of the kinds of questions that researchers are asking during this special time and what researchers can do with results from these types of studies. I think a good example that you gave is a look at sea turtle breeding. How has that changed or what were, they, what were researchers able to observe about that during this time period? So this is research that's been happening in Florida, and it's a very popular beach, and it's public. So people are allowed to go on the beach 24 hours a day. But the thing is, sea turtles love this beach too. It is a really important nesting ground for the endangered loggerhead sea turtle, green turtles, other turtles. The problem has been that the sea turtles are disturbed by humans, but if you want to find out by how much, it's hard to do an experiment because you can't remove the people from the beach. That's what COVID did. Just when the sea turtles were coming back to build their nests, the lockdown happened. So researchers were able to look at the success rate of the sea turtles laying their eggs in nests on the beach. Didn't they also notice that the traffic had a bigger impact than they thought? Right. So what they found was that typically about half the time a sea turtle will come out of the water and decide not to lay eggs for whatever reason. It might be that there's a dog on the beach or there's a beach walker with a flashlight, something that disturbs the turtle. And when there were no people on the beach, the rate went up to 60%. And then when people were, were allowed back on the beach, it, it fell back down to the normal one. So that was really convincing evidence that these sea turtles are disturbed by people on the beach. And it can also disorient the hatchlings when they're trying to find their way from the sand out of the nest back into the ocean. Having this result in hand can help researchers or conservationists make the case then for how to protect these turtles better. Is that what they're hoping for? That's right. In, in all these examples, researchers are really, I think they're optimistic that they'll be able to learn something about how better to minimize the impact that human activity has on the natural world. There's a thread throughout the story about what happens when tourism suddenly declines. You go to Zambia, the Galapagos, Bahamas, French Polynesia, all these places, people are looking to see, oh, we don't have crowds of scuba divers. We don't have people in the same place as these predators. What kinds of measurements are they doing when tourists go away? All sorts of things. And, and one of the reasons there's this focus for researchers who are able to get out into the field on tourism is that international travel is still way, way down. So if activity in a city is getting back to normal or back to normal, then you have to look backwards at what happened previously. If you need to go out and sample uh, something in the environment or measure an animal, international tourism is one place you can still go and see this effect of this anthropause on natural communities. In the Bahamas, there are critically endangered rock iguanas that live on these remote keys. Over the last couple of years, more and more tourists have been showing up on boats, interacting with the iguanas who are now spending more time on the beach, hoping for a snack from a tourist, which has changed 
how they move seeds around the island. It's changed their diet. So researchers are headed back to the Bahamas to look at these iguanas, see how the population numbers might be changing now that they're shifting to their old diet, to see how the size of the population might be changing now that there's less food coming onto these uh, onto these beaches, and, and how the animals' condition or health might have shifted as they're going back to their regular diet. Let's talk about the Society Islands as part of French Polynesia. What's happening there now that tourism has declined? So one impact of the fall off in international tourism is that it's hit the economy, the local economy quite hard. So people who might have been making money working for hotels or in the tourism industry, it looks like they're doing more fishing on the coral reef to help feed their families. And when you take fish off the coral reef, especially the fish that eat algae, it can have a negative effect on the coral because these fish are nibbling the algae off the coral, which prevents the algae from smothering the coral and killing it. So that could be a negative impact that's happening now on the coral reef from humans. The flip side is there aren't as many tourists in the hotels that are on the waterfront. So there's less pollution coming out of the hotels, nitrogen pollution that stimulates the algae growth. So there could be less algae because the tourists aren't present. And figuring out all these effects is going to help them understand how the ecosystem functions in the coral reef better. Okay, let's move to rare animal sightings. This is one of my favorite things that happened in this arena was we saw pictures of sheep invading towns because no people were on the street coming down out of the mountains. And then there's also exotic rare animals that are showing up in unexpected places. Absolutely. And that's one thing that actually stimulated a lot of researchers' interest in figuring out what was going on. If they weren't able to get out further into the field, a lot of people started putting their automated cameras closer to home, on university campuses, in urban forests. And in some places, they've discovered things that they really weren't aware that there were species there. So in Chile, for example, they started detecting rare wild cats in the urban forests and endangered river otters. So it really raises the question, have those species been there and researchers just weren't looking for them? Or is there something that's changed during the anthropos? Chile has a problem with stray dogs, which are you know a threat to wildlife. So if there were fewer stray dogs hanging around the university because there's less food scraps, for example, maybe that was the cause of these sightings. This story really makes me think how instrumented our world is now, though, how much of this data researchers have in hand, and they're now able to comb back through it and see what the anthropos did, what changes might have happened as a result of all these people slowing down. I was really impressed by how many researchers have have really taken this opportunity to learn more about the world. And so many of them said it's it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. And they really hope it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. No one likes to be locked down. They're all so aware that this is really causing a lot of of misery and suffering and Mm -hmm. loss for humans in the world. So, you know, it's a kind of a silver lining that they may be able to learn something important about how people are impacting the natural world. Thanks, Eric. Great talking with you again, Sarah. Eric Stockstead is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to his story and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. 
Stay tuned for an interview with Elizabeth Panisi about electric microbes. These are bacteria that can send charge over short distances. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This week, we have a special issue on mud. Yes, that brown, wet stuff. In the mud issue, the news team tackles mud in many ways, like how humans are reshaping the world's mud supply and the dangers of dams meant to contain muddy mine waste and more. Senior correspondent Elizabeth Panisi is here to tell us about her contribution to the mud special issue, a feature story on electric microbes first found in mud. Hi, Liz. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I am excited to talk about mud And as expected, your story starts with mud. Eventually, we will get to these electric microbes. These are bacteria that conduct electricity. But let's start with a muddy observation. A researcher noticed his jar of mud changed color. Can you set the scene for us? So the mud is a very stinky black mud that came from the bottom of a harbor in Denmark. And what happened is, is a layer of the mud got lighter in color. The jar of mud should not have changed color. And not only did it change color, but they had these very sensitive chemical sensors in the mud that detected that hydrogen sulfide was disappearing. Hmm. Hydrogen sulfide is a compound that builds up as organic matter decays. Usually it builds up because there's not enough oxygen in the mud for the bacteria to use to break down the hydrogen sulfide. Now, what does the disappearance of hydrogen sulfide have to do with bacteria moving electrons around? The hydrogen sulfide should not have disappeared, at least not the way scientists understood the way bacteria and mud work. Mm -hmm. And the scientists involved sort of was really puzzled. He thought first his sensors were not working right, but they were working right. One night he woke up and thought, well, what if there were bacteria that somehow managed to work both in the mud where the hydrogen sulfide was and closer to the surface where there was oxygen? And he came up with this idea that maybe the bacteria were somehow transferring electrons taken from the hydrogen sulfide up to where the oxygen was, where they could use them. Mm -hmm. This is basically how cable bacteria were discovered. Why exactly are they called cable bacteria? The bacterium has a bunch of cells. The cells are stacked up one on top of each other, making a long chain of cells or a cable, as you might want to call it, that goes from where the hydrogen sulfide is deep in the mud to where there's oxygen higher up. Are the electrons moving inside the cable, inside the cells, or on the outside somehow? The electrons travel along these, what they think are protein wires that are just on the inside of the sheath covering the cable or the sheath covering the chain of cells. How long can these chains be? Uh, They 
found them up to five centimeters long. Hmm. So that's about the width of a golf ball. Wow. These cable microbes were observed in a jar to start with. They saw the, this change in the color of the mud. They saw a change in the presence of this chemical. And then they were able to use what microscopy to see the cables. What about out in nature? Where are these cable microbes and what are they doing in the wild? Once they figured out they were in the mud, which came from the bottom of the harbor, they started looking in sediments along coasts, in marshlands, in fresh water. They find them in aquifers. They find them basically wherever you have a buildup of mud or sediment that is pretty stable over time, where the bacteria have a chance to build their chain of cells. There's another type of electric bacteria that do this solo, and these are called nanowire microbes. How are they different than cable microbes? Nanowire microbes actually were discovered before cable bacteria, and they make a very fine protein chain that just extends nanometers as opposed to centimeters. Mm -hmm. So what happens is the cell builds this protein tendril or antenna, if you want to call it, and it builds it from itself to either another bacterium or to a metal or a particle that it can transfer electrons. Are they doing it for the same reason as the cable microbes? In both the cable bacteria and the nanowire bacteria, in order to get energy to live, they need to break down something. And breaking down that something generates free electrons. And you can't let free electrons run around the cell. They would cause a lot of damage. And so they have to find a place to put those electrons. And both cable bacteria and nanobacteria, they shuttle those electrons someplace far away from the cell to either another cell or a particle of some sort. Liz, what open questions are there still out there about electric microbes? What are researchers looking at for down the road? Well, they still don't really understand how electrons are moved from the cell to whatever the electron acceptor is. They know that proteins are involved, but they're not exactly sure what the proteins are, especially in cable bacteria. And they don't really understand the physics of what's happening. Mm -hmm. When I hear, oh, this is an electric microbe, I'm thinking, oh, well, can we make electronics from it? Is that something that researchers have tried? Yeah, that was an immediate thing that all the researchers who've worked with and been involved in the discovery of these bacteria have thought about probably the nanowire bacteria, which have been known about for much longer, have been the most investigated with respect to applications to electronics. What researchers have figured out how to do is how to make nanowires in large quantities and how to modify their properties a little bit so that they can detect different chemicals that might be important to detect. For example, they have some sensors made with nanowires that can detect ammonia. And you want to detect ammonia buildup in lots of industrial applications. That's very cool. I saw you also wrote something about them as a way of harvesting energy. Yes, that's a fairly unique and maybe a little controversial idea. 
where if you make a film out of all these nanowires and stick it in air with some humidity, and it doesn't have to be great humidity, it will eventually generate an electric current. The idea is still very experimental, but what you can do is you can hook a series of about 20 of these little film devices together. Just sitting in moist air will generate enough electricity to power a cell phone. If we zoom out a little bit, if these really are found everywhere there's mud, which if you read our mud special issue, you know, is a lot of places. Does that mean that they have a big effect on the planet, on some of the plant-wide cycles? Well, this is what scientists are beginning to believe. The more researchers look at microbes in sediments, the more they realize they have an important role in helping cycle nutrients like carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, so that other forms of life can use them. And they get into the atmosphere as methane. Increasingly, people are recognizing that microbes in sediments, not just cable bacteria, nanowire bacteria, but microbes in general, are really important for how our climate works and how life is sustained. Thank you so much, Liz. Well, thank you. Elizabeth Panisi is a senior news correspondent for Science. You can find a link to her story and our MUD special issue at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.